yesterday morning, um, yesterday morning, yesterday morning, yeah, landed, did the ultimate of red eyes from Seattle. Our time left at 3 o'clock in the morning and got here at 6.30 and, uh, oh man, whew, that'll age you. I had no gray hair before I went on that flight. <clears throat> you, that's the same one you and I took, the one where you cuddled into me and drooled and that was bad, but now she did it, it's much better. Um, <clears throat> but when that plane landed, <clears throat> I was thinking of that and then when we came on our way home, 24 years ago at that very time, I first gave my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, I know the day, I was there. And um, it, was, it was pretty significant for me. It was an inner battle to whether or not I was going to lay down my heart to Jesus Christ to become a follower of him. Others of you don't have that inner struggle. I definitely did. And uh, in a shower in House 10 of Frontier Hall. Frontier? That, can I hear that again? Thank you. Can I get a witness? Um, uh, that's where I, I laid to rest the question whether or not I was going to be a follower of Jesus. And so that was 24 years. Jeez, somebody's getting old around here. So um, I got a confession to make. I am, I am you know, when I, I work with young preachers, and I, uh, I always tell them, man, you know, lighten up. You, you got 52 weeks a year. Don't dump the whole Bible on them. I'm going to dump the whole Bible on you today. I've been doing this for, for a few years now, but I'm still, you're going you're gonna to get it. And I, this week... Um, I feel like the Lord kind of blessed me with something, and I just feel this, this uh, uh, irresistible urge, I'm going to call it that, to just let you have it. So uh, hang on, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to teach you the entire Bible here this morning. And, and I know that sounds ridiculous. It's actually not. My goal, if, if you, when afterwards you can tell me if, if I did. If you're here and you know nothing about the Bible, <clears throat> my aim, and I got a high aim this morning, is that you will leave and you will understand the entire course of the Bible. I am not kidding you. This is my aim. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, my aim this morning is that you will see this course throughout the Bible that will so rejuvenate you that you will be transformed. Not just, oh, that was a neat sermon. Fine, whatever. But, ooh, ah. I mean, July 4th in your heart all the time, okay? That's where we're going. We got a lot to do to get there, so let's get busy. Uh, we're in a series in the Gospel of John right now, and we are in the 14th chapter. If you're just joining us, uh, you could, you know, this week you could read the first 13 chapters, half a chapter 14, boom, you're caught up, you'd be right with us. We'll be in this till about the fall through the Gospel of John. I have loved the Gospel of John. Uh, every time we start and, and finish a book, I always mourn. When we ended Acts, I was bummed, and now when we're in the middle of John, uh, some of you know each other because of when you came. Oh, I came around John chapter 6. Oh, I was John chapter 3 or whatever, you know. So, But now if you're here first, you're John 14 people. Just mark that day. We're in John chapter 14. And, and uh, what has happened is this is, John is unlike the other Gospels in a lot of ways. But one thing that John does that's different is he expands the last week of Jesus to almost half the book of, of, of John. So we're in John chapter 14, there's 22 chapters to John, and John chapter 14 is Thursday night. It's, it's you know, of, of, of when, if you're familiar at all with what Easter means, Good Friday, Jesus dies on the cross, Sunday, Easter Sunday, that's way over in John chapter 20. So we've got a long time, we're going to be in these few days here until the fall, all through the summer, we're going to be working through this. What's happening now, right where we're at in John chapter 14, is the point where Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples. He's hanging out with them. He's having Passover with them, which Jewish festival. And he's giving them final instructions. In these final instructions, he told them in John chapter 13 that one of you will betray me. 
One of you will betray me. They all freak out, wondering, who is it? Who could it be? Could it be me? No, it can't be me. I won't betray him, all that kind of a deal. And Judas, of course, knew it was going to be him. Peter is thinking, no way. No way would it be me. I won't do that. So let's pick it up from right there with Peter's interaction. At the very end of John chapter 13, just so you kind of know where we're at, John chapter 13, uh, verse 36, Simon Peter, oh, and there's an insert today, and uh, I, I, I'm, you're going to open your mouth, and I'm going to put a fire hose in it this morning, so if you're trying to take notes, I, I wrote everything down, all the PowerPoint is on the website, just sit back, just you can just relax, because there's going to be a lot here. Okay, so uh, Simon Peter asked him, John chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, I'm, I'm going, um, I'm going somewhere, and Simon Peter asks him back, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, keyword, now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Gosh, Peter, is just like a two-year-old. No, no, Jesus, I want to come now, now, no. I will lay down my life for you. You don't understand, Jesus. I'm not, not only am I not the betrayer, I'm willing to die for you right now. Put a bullet in my brain for you. I will. And then Jesus says the hardest words probably Peter ever heard from Jesus. Really? Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. It's nighttime already. They're having dinner. Jesus is saying, before you see the sun again, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. You're not just going to leave me. You're going to disown me. You're going to tell people, I don't know him. I dislike him. I disdain his teaching. In one of the uh, Gospels, it says that he calls curses down. Whoa. I said this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. If you, whatever you bring into this room is nothing like what Peter did. Jesus, or Peter rejected Christ in, in the... Right there when Christ was being put on trial, it says in Luke that Jesus looked right at Peter when the last time he rejected him. Okay. There's a silence in the room. He's Remember, we're in this, we're having dinner. There's a silence there. Now, Peter, or Jesus, Jesus excuse me, is going to teach them something very profound. It goes from John chapter 14, 1, all the way through the end of 16. He's going to teach him his last things he's going to teach him. So it's very, very, very important. It's like the last thing he'd say coming out of the locker room. He says this. Pick it up in verse 1 of John chapter 14. We're going to do the first 14 verses today. There's a ton in these 14 verses. We could spend a ton of time here. I'm only really going to hit the first four hard. And we're going to kind of go through the rest. Okay, here we go. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That phrase troubled there. Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's saying this to his disciples. They're troubled right now because of what's happened. One of you betray me. Peter, you're going to disown me three times. The other guy's going, the rock? The rock guy? He's going to disown you? Man, we're all toast. They're starting to freak. And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. We've seen that phrase three other times. One time at the, uh, when Jesus was faced with Lazarus' death in John chapter 11. One time in John chapter 12, when Jesus was faced with talking about his own crucifixion upcoming. And the third time in John chapter 13, when he said, one of you will betray me. Jesus had this inner turmoil, this troubling, which ended in him snorting like a horse. He lost it in one of the occasions in John chapter 11. This is not your little, ooh, I'm kind of bummed. This is serious angst. He says, don't let your hearts have serious angst. And he gives the solution. He says, trust or believe. Same word. 
Believe in God. Trust also in me. Huge claim there. Saying, I am, I am God. And he's going to say at the end of this section too. Trust. That's the answer. Now he's going to teach. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, he uses a word three times. The word's place. He says, I'm going to this place. And he, and he ends it by saying, we got to remember that because it's going to be a little while before we come back. Uh, he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And then we'll find a question that they don't quite understand what that means, but just hang with me. He's talking about this place. Now, what I want to do here is jump out of John 14 for just a minute, and I want to take you to understand why that's so significant. Basically, the Bible can be folded down into this, simply this, the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, and everything else is in the middle. Oh, so glad you came to get so wise. Uh, the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters, and there's something major in the middle. I want to teach you the beginning, I want to teach you the end, and then we'll talk about this in the middle. So, it's very important so you understand this, this phrase, I go to prepare a place for you. What does that mean? Place. Some people say, in my... In my uh, Father's house, there's many mansions, and all you're going, woohoo, I get a rock, and I'm going to get a big mansion, like, go back one, there you go, big mansion, like that kind of a thing, or whatever, and, and, and you know, could be, could be, could be really cool, I have no idea what the housing is going to be, could be a mansion, that sounds great, I think, though, if you're just into the, how cool your house is, how big the TV is, whatever, how big the ballroom is, or whatever, you're kind of missing what Jesus is really talking about here. There's much, much, much more. This whole concept of a place. I'm going to prepare a place. Right now, when I go to the cross, it's going to prepare this place. How does it, what does that mean? Okay, first two chapters of the Bible. What did we have in the beginning? If you got your Bible with you, or if you want to watch it, flip to Genesis chapter 1. If you're brand new to the Bible, it's page 1. You can't miss it. Don't ever be embarrassed at hope when we quote a book and you don't know where it is and you open that Bible up and you look in the contents. i got to look in the context for some of those Weird middle 12 minor prophety kind of things and a few other things. So don't worry about that. But this one's easy. Very beginning. John chapter 1. Or excuse me. Genesis chapter 1. There are other books in the Bible than John. Um, and I want to look at this morning. Uh, what did the place look like in the beginning? How did God create it? Genesis chapter 1. I'm gonna, um, I don't have time to go through all of it. I'm going to go through just verses 26 and 20, uh, through 28 in chapter 1. And then we're going to look a little bit in chapter 2. Okay. Then God said, he's in the middle of creation here. He's coming now to the creation of humans. And he says, let us make man in our image. It's a very important phrase. In our image. Latin, that means imagio dei. Uh, If you're into Latin. Imagio dei. Maybe you hear that phrase. Image of God. It's very important. In our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
Male and female, he created them. Now, this is another whole deal. Come back this fall, we're going to talk about this. But the whole maleness, femaleness thing, how does that work in the design of God? This was the design of God that was beautiful, perfect in the beginning. Why did God do that? Why did he make maleness and femaleness? Come back this fall, we're going to touch that. But anyway, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and of the, of the sea and the birds of the air and over every, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, what does he say here is how are they made? They're made in the, in the image of God, imagio Dei. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. It means in his likeness. It means all kinds of things. One of the things, though, that an image does And the primary purpose of an image is when you look in the mirror and you're looking straight at it, you see the reflection of the dude who put his face in the mirror. Again, this is profound. I know, you want to write this stuff down. Uh, Right, you see, and what does that mean? Your imageness, Adam and Eve's imageness, meant that they were created to reflect God. That's their primary purpose, is to reflect God. To enjoy God, to treasure God, and to reflect God completely and perfectly. People come up to you and just go, God, you're not God, you're just an image of God. But you're God. I mean, I see God. I see his reflection in you. Okay. Very important. Genesis chapter 2. Flip the page or flip over to the next side. Whichever you go. Genesis chapter 2. We don't have time to go through the whole thing again. Pick it up in verse 4. If you hyper-click, excuse me, if there were blue text underlined and you were to click on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it would take you to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and it's kind of like explaining it a little bit more clearly. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the, and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for, there, for the Lord God uh, had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth, and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, something we didn't see before. So he takes him out of dust, forms him, breathes on him, becomes living. And the man became a living being. Verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. Form the man here. Go in this garden. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were, and this is just an interesting phrase, pleasing to the eye and good for food. Well, that's interesting. Why do you you put the phrase pleasing to the eye? So what? Just give me something to eat. There's more there. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And if you read the rest of chapter 2, he creates Eve. And there's this beautiful marriage ceremony there where Adam and Eve come together in the first wedding. And that's just like, whoa, this is awesome. God created this beautiful garden. Adam's there, and he comes together, and there's this relationship, unlike the relationship he had with any of the other animals, because he he names them. If you remember from Genesis chapter 2, he names them, but it's not really wanting to connect. 
With Eve, there's a connection, a perfect connection. Now, what's in this? What's in Genesis 1 and 2? What are the aspects, those beautiful aspects of Genesis 1 and 2? Number one, there's a place. They had a place. This place was the Garden of Eden. It was home in every sense of the word. There's three aspects I want to talk about real quick. First of all, it was peace. It had peace and it had safety. There was safety in the. You, you, you didn't even know any harm. There was no such thing. We, Carol and I have lived in our house for 16 and a half years. There's something about when I walk in the door that just makes me go, ah, oh, home. It could be the smell of my shoes or I don't know what it is. But there's something that I just come through. and just, ah, oh, I just like our house. It just feels home. That is a small smidgen of what it felt like in the Garden of Eden. There was just a homeness. There was peace. There was safety. There was, it, everything was beautiful. Don't, don't take that for, for granted. Those of you who are not you know, artistic types. Beauty is very important to God. Why? It's pleasing to the eye, it says. There's something about it. I mean, there's just something. What God creates is just beautiful. We just came from the Pacific Northwest. Those mountains, mountains do it for me. Mountains, oh, mm, mm, beautiful. Carol likes oceans. Great. Flat water doesn't do it for me, but that's cool. It's, it's awesome. People. Now, I'm not talking about lust here. I'm just talking about looking at people that are beautiful. Dang. Some, you're not looking at one right now, but some people, you just look at it and go, there must be a God. You are just amazing. You know, I, I, take that. I, don't quote me out of context here. But there are people that just, God has just created things that are beautiful. Not too many guys, I know. But, you know, God, there are just, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing what he created. Men and women are created, and they're created beautifully. If you can get over some of the, the, the lust things, look at some of the Renaissance art, and it's actually, excuse me, it's absolutely beautiful. The human body is beautiful. God created it that way. Trees, other things, just a gorgeous thing. And it's satisfying, good for, pleasing to the eye, and good for food. This place was complete. I loved it. It was home. Second thing, I had meaning. I had meaning in the Garden of Eden. Meaning in three ways. One, I had truth. I had no error. I had no falsehood. There was never anything I wondered about. I didn't have any doubt about anything because there wasn't anything ever to deceive me. It was completely, perfectly truthful. Secondly, I had meaningful work. What were their jobs? Rule over the fish, which does not mean rip apart. It means to be a good steward of, okay? Uh, it, their job was all to be fruitful and multiply. There you go. Hope you're doing really well on that one. Um, and, then, and then also, put, Adam was put in the garden to tend it, to take care of it. But meaningful work. By the way, work is not the curse. We'll see that in just a minute. Hard work, toiling work is the curse. Not work. Meaningful work. Third thing, uh, we had perfect human relationships, reproduction. Perfect. There was no strife between Adam and Eve. Zero. It was perfect. There's never existed since that time a perfect human relationship. Person you're sitting next to right now? Mm-mm. 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 <laughs> the best there ever has been is half. And that was when Jesus was on the earth. Anybody he related to, his side was perfect. The other side, not so much. Third thing they had in the garden was life. Full life. Fully alive. 
I had a hard time defining this, and I, I wish I had more time this week. I used it, and, and I used the word life in the definition, which is the worst thing, but I did it anyway, so just hang with me. I call it this. There's some verses there. You can look them up. The opportunity to really live life to its full, to treasure and worship God, to enjoy others and creative, creative things in such a way as to bring maximum pleasure and life, and to do so without any fear that there's an end to such things. No death. Opposite of life is, is death, right? Life ceases, you're dead. None of that. It's gone. That's living. Second thing was its delegated autonomy. Uh, I mean, what makes a rock not alive? Because I just put the rock there and I come back, unless something moves it, and the rock is still there. There's no autonomy. Delegated in the sense that God is completely in control. You are free to eat from any tree you want. That's, a, that's part of what it means to be alive, is to have choices. Some of you want to call that free will. I took too many philosophy classes to believe in any free will. That's another issue of another day. Uh, no such thing. Gravity, everybody else affects you, whatever, da-da-da. But, yeah, you want to call it free will? Fine, fine, fine. It's choices. I have real choices. I have delegated authority. However you want to, however you want to call it. Now, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Guess what? It was lost. It's called theologically the fall. Genesis chapter 3 is one of the darkest, if not the darkest, it is the darkest chapter in the Bible. Because especially what we had in Genesis 1 and 2, it's gone. It's not completely gone. It's marred really, really, really bad. How'd how'd we lose it? Flip over to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to buggy ride through this real quick, so hang on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. God said, you shouldn't eat from that tree. Any other tree you can eat from. So it gets, gets, and Eve is the one relating to him, saying, no, 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 he didn't say that really. What did he say? Gets him a little, gets gets confused and ultimately then ends up, uh, I won't go into this whole thing. It's a great study. Look at it. We're going to skip down to chapter, verse 6. She then decides to disobey God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, You can do anything else you want. You can do anything else you want in the garden. Just don't eat from that tree. I want the fruit on that tree. (laughs) When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her. Don't, Don't take him off the hook. He was there and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened to what? to disobedience for the first time. That moment, innocence was lost. And what happens? They realize they're naked. Dude, I'm naked. It's kind of of different. You know, if you were only naked, the only other person there is Eve. It's my wife. But somehow that was like, ooh, I'm still, I'm naked. This is weird. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Fig leaves. Um, I don't know much about fig leaves. I'm guessing maybe six hours is as much you get out of a fig leaf. You don't get a lot of time out of a fig leaf. But... It's temporary, I guess, works. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Um, there's something beautiful about this imagery that shows the relationship that Adam and Eve had, had, past tense, with God. That God, uh, uh, it, it talks about God being right there with them, walking with them in the cool of the day in the garden. It's imagery. It's beautiful. How do they relate with him now? And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Whoa. What happened to Imagio Dei? It got marred. 
But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Fear, shame, and hiding from God. Ooh, things have changed. And, and he, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that which I commanded, from which I uh, commanded you not to eat? The man said, here we go, here comes the blame game. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And it's interesting how God, at this, when he pronounces this, everything changes. And he starts with the order of the blame, the way that they blamed them. First, the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, strife, conflict, war, Living in a land where people kill each other. I will, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Prophecy about Christ, eventually. But, what's going to happen? All of a sudden now, things have changed, and there is now enmity in the world. There wasn't before, there is now. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Remember, that was part of the blessing, meaningful work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make babies, lots of them, be fruitful and multiply. Now it's going to be painful that that will happen. And you'll give birth, with pain you will give birth to children. And here comes the rest of this curse. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. No longer is it this perfect relationship thing. The husband is going to rule. There's going to be this fighting for who can get on top. Marital is going to look like that. It's going to have strife in the marriage. If you're married and yet there's not a few of those in your life, Mm. I, give me five minutes with you. I can get there. <clears throat> to Adam, verse 17, he says, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. The planet is cursed. Because of you, through painful toil, no longer meaningful work, no longer work is my joy, I get to tend the garden, Cool. Now, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Oh, you're going back. There's going to be an end to you now, pal. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death now comes in. Wasn't there before. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God in grace. This is amazing. I, that'd be the end of me. If I were, that'd be the end of the Bible if it were me. Just trash you. You're done. You disobeyed. Start again or something. I don't know what I do, but God does something. He takes their fig leaf garments, you know, Walmart City, gives them <laughs> Macy's. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. You might think, that sounds, doesn't sound very graceful. Oh, dude, that is graceful. If you eat from the tree of, the, of life after this point and you stay in the state you are for eternity, that is not good. And those of you who are saying, I love my life. My life is great. I wish I could give you 15 seconds of heaven. And you'd come back and you'd say, this sucks. 
to have a good life. I love to live life. I love to laugh. I love to play. Nothing wrong with that. But compared to that, compared to what it was like in the garden, you don't, you don't have a grip if you think this is, this is everything. You don't understand the Bible if you think this is everything. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he did, you know, kicking and screaming, get out! He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree to life. Why do you think that's there? Why does he put the dude with the lightsaber out there? Because Adam and Eve and you and I, from the moment we are born, are doing anything we can to get back into the garden. I was not created to live here. You were not created to live here. Don't, if I hear one more person at a funeral tell me death is just a natural part of life, that is B as in B, S as in S. That's not true. Death is not a part, a natural part of life. It is unnatural. I don't live in a world where people walk into Virginia Tech and, and shoot students. I don't, I don't want to live in that world. You don't either. There's no way that I'm designed for that. That's crazy. I have a nephew who, who goes to Virginia Tech. And uh, by God's amazing sovereignty, was running late for class. His classroom was in the building where the shooting was going on. He couldn't get in. The police wouldn't let him in. We're watching the thing. Carol and I are, are out of town, and we're watching this, and we think, no, he goes to Virginia Polytechnic. And then we realize, oh, it's the same thing. And it, comes, it hits you a lot closer when it's like that. And I love my nephew. I don't know him really well. They live on the East Coast. We don't see him all that often. But it started making those pictures that come up of people that had died a lot more real. And I started to think, what if they were my son? I was not designed to live here. There's days I just want to take a brick and throw it through my TV. If you don't feel that, you don't understand that you want back in the garden. You went back in the garden, and so do I. And that's why the cherubim are there. What's happened? They bought a lie, and what happened? They lost three things. They lost those three things. They lost their place. They were banished from the garden. They lost a place where there was safety. They lost a place where there was, was uh, perfect beauty and satisfaction. They also lost meaning. No longer was work going to be completely satisfying. They lost the peace in the home. They lost truth. They lost meaningful relationships. They lost the joy of their purpose. And they lost life. They now are people who are going to die. No longer were things going to be completely satisfying. And we live there. We live outside the garden. If you're wondering why, either, whether you're a follower of Jesus yet or not, if you're wondering why life is so difficult, it's because you live outside the garden. The most important thing, though, that they lost they lost their opportunity to completely reflect the image of God. It's not completely lost. We'll see in Genesis chapter 9, if you look there, Genesis chapter 9, 6, God says, I've made man in my image. He's still making people in his image, but it's marred now. It doesn't have that perfect reflection. Now, that's the first two chapters of the Bible, and I'm telling you the third, how we lost it. Now let's skip all. I'm going to come back to the middle. Let's go to the bat. Last. It gets so much better. So much better. What happens at the end? I, 
If you've never read the Bible, I'm going to ruin it. So spoiler alert, you might want to just, you know, huh? I'm going to ruin it here. But, but uh, what happens is a complete undoing of Genesis chapter 3. A complete undoing of Genesis chapter 3. I only have time to do a few verses here. Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation 21, starting at verse 8. Then I, by the way, you don't get these verses until you did what we did first. These verses are just kind of cool. Until you realize how bad it is, you won't appreciate how good it's going to be. When you get there, it's beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. You see that? He's back there. He's back walking in the garden again. It's not at all a distant relationship. It's right there. The dwelling of God will be with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Whoa. Think about that. Here's this almighty, omnipotent, holy God down on one knee taking his thumb and wiping away your tears. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne saying, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, to, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There it is. The end of everything, the goal of everything is again, the Imagio Dei, again, being the image of God. Having a perfect relationship with God, being able to completely trust Him. That's what heaven is, being right in right relationship with God. God is the goal of heaven, not golf. Maybe there's golf in heaven or not, or whatever, insert favorite pastime here. God is the ultimate end. Now, those other things might be there, fine. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those are project practice magic arts, the idolaters, liars, they aren't going to be in there. They aren't going to get restored. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death, and there'll be death, eternal death, eternal separation from life, eternally. Then the angel showed me, verse, now I'm going to skip over to chapter 22, then the Angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. There's the tree again. Now we can eat of it and live in a certain, in, in a way that's living and life giving, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. There's no more curse. It's gone. I would love 60 seconds without a curse. Sorry, getting a little excited. Um, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, face, and His name will be on their foreheads. They will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And what's our meaning and purpose there, right? What, what's our job? Next verse. And they will reign, reign forever and ever. We get to reign? That's crazy. I'm a traitor. I'm the one who caused all this to happen and God's going to make me a king and a priest and a one who gets to reign? 
That rocks. That's what Christianity is about, is those two chapters. Now, it's also about God giving you a meaningful life and getting you a good job and other things. Yeah, kind of. But that's just a little itty-bitty part of it. The big thing is, I'm going home. Now, just real quickly here. We live in kind of a weird thing. Hang on with me here. It's like this is the Genesis 3 time, and this is the new age, and we kind of live a little bit of a Venn diagram time. We're right in the middle of that. Pardon my Mickey Mouse thing here, but, but okay, we're right in the middle of that. There's a little bit of an overlap. We get what I call now a taste. It's an hors d'oeuvre of that. You get a taste. Where is that? I, I lifted some verses here. I don't have time to go into them. We have a place. The place is, believe it or not, the church. The place is the church. And you might be thinking, the church? Other believers? There are times in my life when I'm around other believers, there's something in me that just comes alive for about three and a half seconds. And I go, whoa, what was that? That smelled like Eden for a second. And then, now it smells like the fall all of a sudden. Ooh. There's, there's people that I just love here, and there's people that, you know, you just want to punch in the face. I mean, you're looking at one. You're probably just thinking, ugh. Yes, it's a taste. It's an hors d'oeuvre. We also have meaning. We have meaning right now. You're Christ's witnesses. There's verses there uh, that explain what our meaning now is, to do the work of God. The work is to believe in the one he has sent. We have life. You have life right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have life. It's, it's not completely consummated. That's coming, but you have it right now. So you have a taste, but it's not completely there. If you wonder why your life as a follower of Jesus is such a struggle, welcome to the normal Christian life. You live in a fallen world. Doesn't mean you can't be victorious. It certainly can, but it's hard. Okay. Now, that's all just a parenthesis there. Sorry. That's the thing. Jesus says, I'm, not, I'm going to make a place for you. And their hearts should have just rung. Oh, my goodness. That's what we want. They don't get it. They're very honest in the book of John because they completely don't get it. Look at Thomas's question. I love these two disciples, Thomas and Philip. They're just real honest. Jesus says, you know the, you know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas says two things. Man, I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. That's what he says. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? This is known as setting a guy up. Thomas is set up so Jesus can say, utter one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. It doesn't stop there, though, because that's the question. How do we get there? I am the way. See this right here? That's going to be the way. You see, how do you get from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21, 22? The cross. The cross is the way. What's going to happen? I'm it. You've got to go through me. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, I'm the truth and I'm the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Those are the three things you lost in the Garden of Eden, by the way. That's the three things. You lost your place. You lost your meaning. You lost truth. And you lost your life. Jesus says, I'm all of it. I'm everything. I know one thing. I know it. Ever since we started Hope, I've known this. I know the answer to your question. It's Jesus. Now, the, the problem is I don't exactly know what question you're asking. I know the problem in my own life. I know the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He satisfies everything. He is the way to my place. 
He is the, he's the one that gives me meaning, and he's the one that gives me life, so I feel alive. He's my answer. I'm not exactly sure if I'm asking the right questions. Now, this verse is commonly used, John 15, 6, is commonly used. Let me finish this up because we're going to skip. If you really knew me, you would know, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Got to go through Jesus. Exclusivity of Christ. We'll talk about that in a second. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This verse is often used, and rightly so. And rightly so, as the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He's the only way. The only way you get from Genesis 1 and 2 back to Genesis 1 and 2, which is Revelation 21 and 22, the only way you get there is through Jesus Christ. The only way. There is no, it's not a way. I'm flat out saying every other way is wrong. That sounds arrogant. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. I'm the way. People say, Jesus, you know, he's just a great teacher. He's, he's not really arrogant like you Christians. Dude, he's the one who said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the answer. I'm not saying you have to become an American or all this kind of, but Jesus. Yeah. This week on Friday morning, I was reading, I was trying to read through the book of Romans. I only made it through 10 chapters, but um, I read these first four verses of chapter 10 and it broke my heart. Paul says, he's talking about his fellow Israelites, and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Whoa, 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 wait a minute now, wait a minute now. Hold it, Paul. Paul, what are you saying? You're saying these people who know the entire Old Testament, these are Pharisees. These are people who they acknowledge are zealous after God. These are as religious people as you can get. They, they memorize the first five books of the Bible. And he says that their zeal is not based on knowledge. What? What is that about? Not based on knowledge. They know the entire Old Testament. And he goes on to explain, since they did not know, here's what they don't know, the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish it on their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. How do you get, how do you get back to the garden? How do you go from Genesis 1-2 and then through we fall? How do you get back? Revelation 21-22? Sunday school answer, Jesus. It's Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, I don't care how religious you are, I don't care what you follow. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care how many children you help whose parents have died from AIDS. I don't care. That is irrelevant. Paul's saying if you're trying to earn points with God, that's what religion does. If you're trying to do that, you can't have it. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how much you read your Bible. I don't care how much you give, how much you go to church. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Because you're trying to seek your own righteousness. This is a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, somebody else's. It's Christ, and you just take it. And he goes on to explain that in verse 4. Christ is the end. He's the fulfillment of the law. You don't have to keep doing things to earn anything anymore so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The only thing I do is believe. Why believe? Because it's ultimate trust in God. Believe doesn't mean anything out of me. Nothing comes out of me when I believe. Only God gets the glory. How am I made clean enough to get back into the Garden of Eden? Christ. Penalty on the cross. Sufficient. I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what bummed me out is because I have friends who are very religious and don't trust Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins.
Philip then goes on in verse 8. He says, Philip is again, these disciples are great. They are clueless. Uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. By this time I can just see Jesus kind of saying, okay, let's all just take a breath here. Let's all just start over one more time. Verse 9, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Clear claim to the Trinity. Clear claim to divinity. And I almost hear him saying, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name. And I will do it. Lots there. Just simply this. What's the goal of everything? It's to be reunited with God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a reunification. You have to come through the Son to do that. Now, let me close with this. Do you this morning, if, if this is landed with you, it's a real simple test. Do you want to go home? I don't mean those of you going, oh, dude, the roast is in the oven. Uh, I want to go home. No, 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 no. I mean, do you want to go home? If you want to go home, something's sparking within you. I don't care what kind of background you walked in here with. You're getting this. You're getting this. You understand what the Bible's all about. I want to go home. I want to go. I love my wife and kids. I love my house. I love my job. I love a lot of things. I want to go home. I don't want to live in a land where Virginia Techs are anymore or where three missionaries are killed in Turkey where one of the guys first service knew two of them killed because they're followers of Christ. I don't want to live in a world like that anymore. Sick of it. I want to go home. That's what's inkling in your heart then you're getting it and you're getting it. I want to go home. Why do you want to go home though? Because you want peace and safety in golf? or scrapbooking, or whatever your favorite thing is? Or do you want to go home because Jesus is there? And you want to be reunited with the Lord as he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. Jesus is the means, and he's the end. Let's pray. Jesus, it's, I feel very humbled this morning just because uh, so much resonating, resonating within me on this and yet uh, only by your spirit can you just take things that I had uh, at a scale of 1 to 10 that I, and push it to a 10 in people's hearts. Um, so Lord God, by your spirit, would you do that? Just work in our hearts. God, if there are people in this room who have absolutely no desire for you and absolutely no desire for heaven, would you open their eyes to see what Eden was like, what the new Eden will be like. Open their eyes, God. Give them a taste. I pray, Lord God, for people in this room for the first time in their lives, they're realizing that Jesus Christ could be their Savior right here, right now. That this moment, that they could be on their way to this heaven, that they could trust Christ 
alone for the forgiveness of sins. Not religion, not a list of rules, but Jesus Christ, the finished work on the cross. So I pray, Lord God, if there's people in this room right now that would like to say, I want to end it. Just like I did 24 years ago, I want to end this this resistance against you. I want to end it right now. I lay down my life. And Jesus Christ, I allow you. I receive you. I take you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my treasure. I take you. God, give them courage to do that. It's going to mean a big, big, it's going to cost everything. It's going to be a change of life. God, for those of us in this room right now, it's a change of life for us too as we've heard this. God, will we just not be satisfied with things of this world? Whatever they are, we shouldn't be satisfied. That you'd use events in our lives like Virginia Tech to remind us that this is not the way we were designed to be. That, that wicked deeds make us scream to want to be home. Right now, Lord God, I just pray for the people in Virginia, especially those students at Virginia Tech. God, I ask for your spirit to come upon them and to comfort them, to show them that you are there, to show them your grace. It's just awesome to see pictures and video of what you're doing already there. So God, we just pray that this pain would never be wasted, that you'd use it to draw people to yourself. I pray specifically, God, for the families and extended families of those who lost loved ones. God, just knowing that we were close to that. It could have been us. And all that just pained my heart. I pray for them, Lord God, that you would be with them. By your work, Holy Spirit, just move in this room. Do what you need to do with us to make us to be people who uh, long to go home. We pray in Christ's name.